Well, this morning, let me invite you to turn to the book of Psalms. So we, are, we just finished the book of 1 Peter last Sunday. And so this morning, we're going to be starting a new series for our summer. You see that on the front of your bulletin, Psalms, the Songs of Jesus. We've been in and out of the series for a while, and so we often come here in the summer. I'll say a little bit more about that, but this morning we're going to be in Psalm 42, and I'm going to be reading Psalm 42 and 43. Psalm 42 and 43, and if you want to use one of the blue Bibles in front of you, you can find our passage on page 519, 519 in the blue Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, as I said, we're starting a new series for the summer, and summer is a great time to be refreshed, to slow down, to savor the good pleasures that God gives us to enjoy. But while vacations are a wonderful thing, 
and being outside more is helpful, nothing offers us real refreshment like seeing and savoring our great God. And I think there's perhaps nowhere that helps us do that, that helps us see and savor God more than this book of Psalms. This collection of divinely inspired poems, songs, and prayers are windows that let the cool breeze of God's goodness blow through our hot and humid hearts. They are like gentle rain that waters our dry and dusty souls. And they are the shade trees that shelter us from the scorching sun of life's trials. But the Psalms do more than merely refresh us. They also express and shape what's in our hearts. On the one hand, they express, they give voice to our deepest prayers and longings. They give voice to our fears and our praises, our thanks, our laments, and our joys. They, they put words to the things that we're feeling so that when we read the book of Psalms, how often are we reading and we say, yes, that's what I'm feeling. That, I didn't know how to say it, but yes, that's where I'm at. But these Psalms not only express what we feel, they also shape what we feel. They cause us to believe and act and think differently. And we want our hearts as the children of God to be increasingly conformed to God's word. So as we come to the Psalms, we come to have our souls refreshed, our emotions revealed, and our hearts reshaped. But notice on the front of your bulletin that our series has a subtitle. It's not just Psalms, it's Psalms, the songs of Jesus. So I've explained this before, but it's always good for a refresher. Why do we call it the songs of Jesus? Two reasons. First, because these were the songs that Jesus sang, right? The Psalms were Jesus' hymnal. Or if you were today, they were Jesus' playlist that he listened to. These were the songs in our Savior's heart and on his lips. But they weren't just songs sung by Jesus. These are songs about Jesus. Jesus is the true singer and the true fulfillment of all the Psalms. All of them point us to him and show us his greatness and his goodness. And so because they are both sung by him and they are songs about him, the Psalms really are the songs of Jesus. And as we kick off this series for the summer, we find ourselves in Psalm 42. We've been working somewhat systematically through them, and that's just where we happen to kick off this summer. But as you noticed, we are going to cover both Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Why is that? Well, most likely, this was originally written as one psalm. So we have a few clues to this. First, if you look down at your Bibles, you should hopefully notice that Psalm 42 has a title, kind of a superscript above it, and yet Psalm 43 doesn't. Now that's one clue that says, hmm, I wonder why there's not a title on the second one. But notice also that both Psalms contain this almost identical refrain. You see it there in Psalm 42, verse 5, verse 11, and then Psalm 43, verse 5. Not only that, you might have also picked up there's some other questions that they share in common. And not only that, but we also have Hebrew manuscripts that put them together as one. 
But more than all of those reasons, as we walk through them, you're going to see this morning how they fit together to give us a really important message. See, some of the psalms that we cover are for rejoicing, right? They are for celebrating, for thanking God for what he's done. These are the songs that when you go home and everything's going well in life, you put these songs on because you just want to enjoy it. And you just want to worship and thank God for it. But this isn't one of those songs. This is a song you go to when your soul is discouraged. This is a song for when you feel spiritually dry. For the times that, if you're honest, you feel far from God. It's a psalm filled with pain and sorrow and lots of hard questions. Questions like, why, God? Did you notice four times the psalmist says, why? 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 Questions like, when will this be over, God? Where are you? If you've ever asked questions like that, or if you've ever felt too guilty to ask questions like that, I have really good news. God knows our hearts, and he knows that we will walk through seasons like I just described, seasons where it feels far, we feel far from God. That's why God gives us these psalms. To show us he knows the questions we're asking and to show us what to do when we feel far from him. Now the title of the message you see there is a sermon for your soul when feeling far from God. Now most likely you assume that that's what I was going to preach. A sermon for your soul. But what you need to understand is that what I mean by a sermon for your soul, in that sermon, I'm not the one preaching. You are. I'm preaching to you this morning so that you know how to preach to yourself when you feel far from God. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones was a a pastor in London in the 20th century, and he once wrote a book on these seasons that we're describing, these seasons where we feel far from God, we feel spiritually dry. He called the whole thing spiritual depression. And as he looked at this topic of spiritual depression, he saw these very psalms as a key to the answer. And he said that part of the answer is preaching to ourselves. Listen to what he had to say. I say we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. Do you know what that means? I suggest that the whole trouble of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you when you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday and etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's, referring to David in our Psalms, this man's treatment is this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment and I will speak to you. 
So when we are discouraged and downcast, we all know we're prone to listen to ourselves, aren't we? There's those voices that we hear just compounding our problems, pointing out all that's wrong and making the bleak seem bleaker. But what our Psalms this morning teach us is that when we feel far from God, what we need is actually to talk to ourselves. So here's our outline of how we're going to look at these two Psalms this morning. Remember, this is a song, right? So it's kind of structured. You can think of it as a song with three verses and a chorus. And that's how the song is going to go. So verse one of the song is spiritual drought. Verse two of the song is drowning in sorrows. And verse three is my salvation and my desire. And then interspersed in there three times is this chorus of confidence. Okay, so let's jump right in so we can see what's going on here. Look back with me at verse 1. It says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So right off the bat, we've got a picture here. Songs are very good at painting vivid imagery. They're, they're poetic. They help us see with our ears, right? And the picture we have here is of a deer wandering through this dry and dusty land. You can almost see the tumbleweed blowing across the screen, right? And what this deer is doing is he's desperately looking for streams of water to quench its thirst. And the psalmist is saying, after he paints that picture, he says, God, that's what my soul is like right now. I am thirsty for you. I'm thirsty for you, the living God. I'm parched. I'm longing for you, God. So right out of the gate, my question for you is, have you ever experienced that in your walk with God? Those seasons where, if you're honest, things just don't feel the same. There's a, there's a thirst, like there's, there's an unquenched part of you. There's a longing and an ache. You just feel like something's off in your relationship with God. You don't feel as, quite as close You don't feel as connected to him. Maybe in those times, you've even used the words, I feel spiritually dry, right? That's a term we use, and that's what we mean, is that something's off. I feel distant. I feel removed. And that's what's going on here. The singer, he feels that spiritual dryness. His soul is thirsty for God, but as he looks around, there seems to be a spiritual drought. He can't find water. But even in this drought, we learn something really important about worship here. What we learn is that the soul of a worshiper is thirsty. That we are hardwired. We have a built-in thirst for God. If you belong to him, you will have a thirst for him that nothing else can satisfy. And just like if you go outside on a really hot day and you're working in the yard and you go very long without water, if you do that, you'll start to, you'll start to feel your thirst and it'll, it'll parch your throat and you'll start to grow weak and weary. And if you're a Christian, if you go too long without drinking deeply of God, guess what? You'll start to feel it. Your soul will start to get dried out and you'll, you'll start panting, just needing a drink. 
and you'll feel faint. You'll feel weak, like, I, I'm not sure, I, can, I don't feel right. Something's off. Why is that? It's because our souls were made to thirst for him. The living God is our deepest desire and our greatest treasure. We don't love God because he gives us other things. We love God because he is what we want. We love God because he is what our souls thirst for. And what this psalmist recognizes is that he's the only thing that can actually satisfy his thirst. Everything else that we might look to, and there are lots of things we can look to, right? But everything else is salt water. You see it and you're like, oh, I'm thirsty. There's a beverage. Let me just drink some of this. But what happens if you drink salt water? It just makes you thirstier still. And all the other things in life that we are tempted and prone to say, maybe that will satisfy me. I, I feel something in my soul. I feel this longing. I feel this ache. And, and I don't know what it's for. So let me try this. Let me try this. At the end of the day, they're nothing more than salt water. Because our souls were made to be satisfied in God alone. But the best news is that through Jesus, our souls can be satisfied. When Jesus confronted the woman at the well in John 4... You remember this scene? He, he meets this woman, and she's living a life of sin. You've got to keep that in mind. This is not a woman who's a stand-up, stalwart citizen of the community that everybody looks with just awe and dignity, like, wow, this woman's got her act together. He meets this woman who is just living a life of sin, and as they're conversing, Jesus, he confronts her, and he asks her this question. Actually, he makes this offer to her. Do you remember what he said to her? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He's saying, your soul is thirsty. And for her, she was looking for it in husbands. That was her salt water. This one didn't work. Let me try another one. No, that didn't work. Let me try another one. For some, it's jobs. For some, it's hobbies. For some, it's a little bit more money. For some, it's just pleasures. For some, it's what you're looking at online. There's just thing after thing after thing. And Jesus says, no. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, that will satisfy. He'll never thirst again. But not only that, when Jesus stood up at the feast later, what did he announce? He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And then do you know how our Bible ends? In Revelation 22, in some of the very last words in the whole Bible, we read this. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So right out of the bat, we got to ask, how could a woman like that, how could a person like us, how can sinful people come and drink freely of this soul-satisfying water, of this water of life? How in the world can I do that? Simple. Because Jesus drank deeply of the cup of God's wrath that we deserve for our sin. He paid the price for our sins so that because he drank deeply of the cup of God's wrath, you and I can come and drink freely of the goodness of God we find in Jesus. In fact, did you, did you hear in those verses that I read a minute ago the only requirement there is to come and drink of Jesus? He says, if anyone thirsts, that's it. 
The only thing you need to drink deeply of Jesus is to feel thirsty for him. Or in Revelation it says, the one who desires. If you want him, you can have him. If you're thirsty, you can drink. That's the only requirement. So friends, if you're here and your soul is feeling that, whether you've never drank from Jesus before or whether you've been walking with him, you say, but you know, if I'm honest today, man, I feel a little parched. Friend, come, because if anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus and drink. He's there for us. But there's something more going on in this psalm. And I'm going to be honest, I've never really paid much attention to it until this week. Once I saw it, it was like, wow, how have I missed this? See, the singer is thirsting for God here. But when he's thirsting for God, he doesn't have in mind this peaceful encounter with God out in nature. He's not picturing an idyllic stroll through the countryside as he ponders who God is. And he doesn't have in mind even a powerful quiet time in his favorite comfy chair with a cup of coffee. What the psalmist is longing for is to experience God in corporate worship. He's thirsty to drink deeply of God in the midst of God's people. Look back at verse 2. He asks a question. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? Now, what you need to understand is that phrase, appear before God, that was a stock phrase, meaning, when will I go to the sanctuary for worship? You see it all over the Old Testament in places like Exodus 23, verse 17, where God requires Israel. He says, all of you are to come and appear before me three times in the year. Come and appear, come and appear, meaning come keep festival. Worship me with all my people at these festivals. And guess what we see in verse 4? It's exactly what our psalmist has in mind. Look, what does he say? These things I remember as I pour, my, pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude-keeping festival. He's not remembering some personalized individual time he's saying oh what my soul is aching for what I'm thirsting for is to experience God again with his people his soul is dry and dusty and what he's aching for is to go to church and to drink deeply with his fellow worshipers as he feels so far from God what he recalls is how good it was when he was with the people of God celebrating and being reminded of who God is and of all his great works he's saying oh what I wouldn't give to be there right now and as we read about his desire it confronts us doesn't it with some questions this morning namely do you see church this way Do you long and ache and look forward to Sunday? Is corporate worship your delight? Or is it merely your duty? Something that you you just know, I ought to do this. I, I know I'm supposed to go to church. When you come to corporate worship, do you come thirsty for God? Are you just going through the motions or are you coming and saying, God, I'm thirsty. I need a drink. I need a drink, God. 
I'm not coming just for a decent sermon or some songs I like this week or even to see people you really enjoy. But are you coming for the living God? Do you come expecting him to satisfy your thirst? Do you do whatever you can to to avoid having to miss church? There will be times it's unavoidable, but do you do whatever you can to avoid having to miss church? Or is church just something you do as, as, as long as nothing else comes up? As long as you're not too tired from whatever you did earlier in the weekend. Or as long as it doesn't get in the way of any plans you might have later in the day. That's, our psalmist wouldn't know what to do with that. Our psalmist here longs to be there. But right now, he's longing because there's something in his life, some circumstance is preventing him from being able to worship God at the sanctuary, and it's killing him. He's feeling really far from God, and he's thirsting to drink of God in corporate worship. But look down again, the only water that he's tasting right now, in verse 3, is the bitter water of his tears. He says, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? What makes his spiritual dryness and his feeling far from God even worse is that his enemies are taunting him about it. They're looking at his situation and they're pouring salt on his wound by saying, so where's your God? Did he leave you? Did he forget about you? Is he not here? Does he not really care? Where is he? And in the midst of his pain and his discouragement as he's wrestling with questions, questions both in his own heart and questions from his enemies, what he does is he starts talking to himself. In verse 5, we come to his chorus of confidence. This is the sermon that he preaches to himself when he's feeling far from God and feels spiritually dry. Now keep in mind, as he's preaching this, nothing's changed. He's saying this while he's still in that hard place from verses 1 to 4. But even though he's in a hard place, oh, he's making plans to praise. Look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Notice he fights questions with questions of his own. Rather than just sit back on his heels and just be bombarded by these questions of himself talking to him and these enemies talking to him, he says, no, 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 no. I've got some questions too. So he says, listen up, soul. Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? And when he says that in turmoil, that that word, that phrase is often used to describe the roaring of the seas, that turmoil language. So he's asking, hey soul, why are you roaring within me? Why are you so choppy and rough and just sloshing around and banging against the rocks? What are you doing feeling so downcast, soul? And then he preaches to himself. Real simple sermon. (laughs) Hope in God. He doesn't try to convince himself that things are okay. He doesn't step back and say, let's let's think about this reasonably. Okay, I, I think everything's fine. He knows it's not fine. He doesn't just try to be more positive. 
or pretend that things will somehow just work themselves out naturally. He's putting his hope in the only place he can be absolutely confident, in God himself. When things are hard, we can be tempted to put our hope in so many other things. We can put our hope in a plan to change. Okay, as long as I've got a a plan of action, right? I've got a course. I've charted this path, and I think as long as I work the plan, as long as I trust the process, this will get me where I need to go. This will fix it. My hope is in a plan. Or we can hope in other people to solve our problems. Yeah, I'm stuck, but I know so-and-so, they're going to, whether it's a friend, a family member, a boss, a colleague, uh, a politician, it could be whoever, but like somebody out there I know is going to bail me out. Or we can just blindly hope that, I don't know, I really don't know how, but I just, it'll all work out, right? That's not faith. That's just blind optimism. But this singer is saying, no, 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 I can't be confident in any of those. I can be confident in God. So soul, hope in God. And he gives himself reasons. Why? Why should he hope in God? For I shall again praise him. In other words, God will come through again. He will certainly act for my good. He's my salvation and my God. In other words, what our singer's doing is he's preaching the gospel to himself. He's reminding his own soul what's true. And what's true is not the voices that are telling him, hey, your God is absent. It's... It's not these voices that are depicting him as completely forsaken and left behind. Instead, what's true is the reality that his God is present with him and will save him. Friends, in Christ, our greatest need has been met. Our sins are forgiven and we've been reconciled to God. So even when we walk through seasons of spiritual drought, we know with certainty that our God will provide water in the dry and weary land. He promises in Isaiah 43, 20, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. So friends, let me ask you again. Are you thirsty for God this morning? Are you feeling parched and longing to praise him again? Hope in God for we shall again praise him our salvation and our God but then notice this things seem to tick up there right like okay he's fighting fire with fire he's yes hope in God but then after his chorus in verse 5 he picks up his song with verse 2 down in verse 6 look at verses 6 and 7 he says my soul is cast down within me Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So right after asking his soul, hey soul, why are you downcast? He admits, yeah, even though it maybe shouldn't, my soul is downcast. Why? Because he's still really far from God. He's far from being able to worship him in his temple. It says there that he's in the land of Jordan and of Hermon. What this is, this is a mountain range up in the far north. This is a long way from Jerusalem. And in these mountains, this is where 
there would be snow on the mountains and as it melts there would be these gullies and canyons and the water would collect and melt and it would come rushing down these gullies and canyons and it eventually would form the start of the Jordan River. It started up in these mountains and flowed its way down. But what would happen is that as these waters come crashing down the mountains, there would be waterfalls and rapids. Water that's crashing and roaring. That's what he's talking about in verse 7. With deep calling to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. It's as though he's standing on one of these on these cliffs or in this mountain range and he's got a, a waterfall over here pounding down into a pool beneath and another one over here and deep is calling to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. What's really interesting about this, isn't it, is that once again he's using water as a picture of what's going on in his life. Up in verses 1 to 4, it was all about the lack of water, how he was thirsting for God like a deer that's looking for flowing streams. He's looking for water, but instead his soul was experiencing the dryness of a spiritual drought. And yet we find out now that he's actually surrounded by water. It's not as though there was no water where he was. The problem was that the water that was all around him wasn't what could quench his thirst. Only God could do that. And now in verses 6 and 7, we see that this water that was all around him Far from being helpful, it was actually destructive. Now he is drowning in it. He's drowning in sorrows as the breakers and the waves have gone over him. And as he's drowning in these sorrows, what does he do in verse 6? He says, therefore, I remember you. In verse 4, he also remembered, right? He remembered some of these times of worship. Now in verse 6, though, he remembers not times of worship, but the God he worships. And we need to know that when the Bible talks about remembering, it doesn't simply mean to recall facts. Like, uh, have you ever been to there? Uh, Yeah, I think I remember once. That's not what it means. In the Bible, to remember is a call to action. Remembering is active, not passive. So in the midst of his circumstances, he remembers who God is. He sets his mind on God, and he remembers what's true about his God. What's true about his God? Look at verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So even though up in verse 3, he lamented that his tears, you see that same language, day and night. He's saying, I'm crying day and night. It's hard all day long. All day long it's hard. But he says, now as I remember God, he can also declare in faith that all day long, God is commanding his steadfast love. All day long, even in the midst of those things, God is protecting and providing for him out of his steadfast love. And notice that this is the only verse in either of these two psalms where God's covenant name, in your Bible you've got the all caps L-O-R-D, standing for God's name, Yahweh. It's the only place in these two psalms his name is used. Everywhere else he's just God, God, God. But here he's Yahweh. That's not an accident. Because here in verse 8 we actually come to the very center of this combined psalm. This is the heart This is the throbbing, pulsing, 
middle of this psalm, and we find in the middle the singer reminding himself that even in hard seasons, even when God feels absent, he knows that his covenant God is constantly showing his covenant love. And this all-day love of God gives him a reason to sing even in the darkness of night when things feel hardest. That's what's at the middle of his heart right now. And that darkness, oh, he still very much feels that darkness. Look at verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Notice that even in his darkness of soul, he's still praying in faith. He's still calling God his rock. And this is so instructive for us, I think. It's helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for you to see that we can feel discouraged and we can feel distant from God and yet cling to him in faith at the same time. Those are not at odds with each other. If you've ever felt down and discouraged, wondering like, where is God? And yet you say, but I, I, I trust in him. I'm hoping in him. You can do both. The Bible tells us you can do both. Here, even as he calls God his rock, he asks God why he's forgotten him. Why is he still experiencing the sorrows of being oppressed by the enemy? This guy is hurting He feels like his heart has a deadly wound as his enemies are still taunting him with that nagging question, where is your God? Even after he preached to himself in verse five, he's still feeling these things. He's still feeling forgotten by God, still feeling pain and sorrow and discouragement. That sermon up in verse five, it didn't make things magically go away. Have you ever been there when God feels distant and you try, you earnestly try reminding yourself what's true in the gospel. You preach it to yourself. You say, listen up, soul. This is what's real. God loves me. He is for me in Christ. He gave his son. And if he gave his son, what will he not graciously give him, give us with him? You say, I do all that, but even then, things still feel the same. What do you do then? Well, what did the singer here do? Did he scrap that idea, say, I tried the sermon thing. I tried rehearsing the truth to myself. Didn't work. I need to find a new strategy. Nope. He preaches the same sermon to himself again. Verse 11 Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. His circumstances still haven't changed, but he once again preaches to his soul to keep hoping in God. Because he knows that hoping in God means trusting him for his salvation. He can't yet see, but he is confident will come. So he summons his soul to wait for God. Through the storm and through the night, keep waiting, keep hoping in him until his soul is satisfied. 
And then after the chorus, we come to the third verse of his song. In Psalm 43, verses 1 to 4. And it's only here that we finally get to his actual requests. Up until now, he hasn't asked God for a thing. He's only been lamenting and pouring out his soul, just saying, God, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what's going on. Here's what's hard. But he hasn't asked him for anything. But now in these verses, he has two main requests. The first one is in verse 1. Look there. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. His first request is for God to save him. He wants God to intervene in his circumstances and to vindicate him and put things right. Well, what would that mean to vindicate? Well, he wants God to deliver him from the taunts of his enemies and show that his faith and his hope in God, they're well-founded. He's saying, God, defend me by showing that you're not absent. If you show up, it disproves all of that and shows that I was right to trust you. I was right to say, you will save me. You will provide for me. You will protect me. You will be my shepherd and stay by me as you lead me through this valley of darkness. So God, deliver me. He needs God to do this, he says, because God is his shelter. God is where he takes refuge. I mean, think about like they used to have those storm shelters, right? Like, so if a tornado comes, you could drop, you could go down into a storm shelter. What do you do if the massive tree falls and blocks the shelter? That's where you go to be safe. So if you can't get to the shelter, if it's not offering you refuge, where in the world can you go? That's what he's feeling. That's why it's so painful to him and so confusing when God seems far away. Look at verse 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He's saying, God, you're my refuge. You're where I go, and yet you have rejected me. He still feels beat down by these enemies' persistent question. Where is your God? Where is he? Where is he? <clears throat> so he prays his second request in verse 3. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. In the midst of my darkness, God, send out your light. He's been having this darkness, this darkness of questions and suffering and pain. He says, God, in the midst of my darkness, send out your light. That's what I need. I'm in darkness, send your light. God, as I face these lies telling me that you're not with me, that you've forgotten and rejected me, send out your truth. And let your light and your truth be my guides to lead me back to you. And specifically notice where they're leading this worshiper. He wants to be led to God's holy hill and his dwelling. In other words, he wants God to restore him back to the place of worship. As he feels so far from God, what he wants more than anything is for God to act and lead him by the light of his presence and the truth of his promises back to worship. He wants to come and appear before God in corporate worship again. 
And when God does bring him back, he eagerly looks forward to what that will mean in verse 4. He says, then, when you do that, God, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Friends, this is the essence of true worship. Worship is, our, our delight is to draw near to God, our exceeding joy. That is the worshiper's greatest desire, to be in the presence of our God who is our greatest joy and our greatest delight. And when we come before him, our only response is praise. We love to worship him for how he's rescued us from our sin, for how he brings light into our darkness, for how he is our refuge and our rock in the midst of life's storms. And we love to do all of that together in corporate worship. We love to hear the praises of God, not just in mono, coming only from us, but in glorious surround sound, coming from the hearts and mouths of fellow worshipers all around us. And as the singer of this psalm closes, the final words to his song are words of hope. Instead of listening to himself, once again, He's talking to himself. In the midst of this dark night of his soul, he confidently reminds himself that God is a saving God and that this saving God is his God. He will come through. Whatever may come, at the end of it, he will be praising God. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know when. But he knows darkness and drought will not have the last word for his soul. Light will dawn again and he will drink deeply of God his exceeding joy. God will bring him back to worship. And as he worships in the company of the saints, his thirsty soul will be satisfied. So friends, if you're thirsty this morning and you're feeling far from God, All ye who hear, now to his temple draw near and join me in glad adoration. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you know us, that you know the way you created us to have souls that can only be satisfied in you. And you know there will be seasons where we don't feel that satisfaction. We feel distant and far off. God, thank you that you've given us a psalm that speaks to our situation so we can can relate to the psalmist here and we can preach this same sermon to our own souls, reminding ourselves to hope in you because you will bring us back to worship, that darkness and drought will not have the last word. So God, I pray for all those this morning who are feeling dry and dusty in their soul. Would you quench their thirst I pray for those who feel like they're drowning that they're alone in this darkness they feel forgotten and rejected by you would you show your light would you show yourself very present to be their help in time of need God would you remind us that we can always hope even in the driest desert and the darkest night because you are our God and you are our salvation. So we ask you to do these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.